Good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church, Chattahoochee. This morning, we are in a third part of a series of five on the church. The first question we asked is, what is the church? The second question we asked last week is, what is church membership? And the question that we are asking and hopefully answering from the scripture today is how should the local church be governed? How should the local church be governed? There's three essential parts. Really, there's two. Um, But I'm going to bleed the first one into the second. The first part is congregational rule and authority. Congregational rule and authority. And almost like a 1A is going to be this idea of peace and purity of the church. You see that come out in the two texts that were just read. There's an aggressiveness on the part of Paul and even the scriptures and of God to keep his church in a place of peace and purity. And then the third part is um, looking at the idea of elders and deacons in the scripture. Before we do that, I am always, and uh, when I'm walking closely with the Lord, very humbled to stand before you and to even begin to open the Word of God because it is my firm conviction that this is not just a book. It is the actual words of God to His people. And therefore, I intend to open this book and to teach it to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I can't do that. Only God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So bow with me and let's pray. Father, would you come now? Forgive me my sins. You know that they are many. And would you be with your people? Would you teach your people your holy word? Would we make much of you? Would you be supreme here? Would we treasure you together? And in so doing, build laborers in the church for the world. Father, we pray this for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of the nations. Amen. And so, you know, I remember at Christmas, you may remember this as a child, there would be uh, presents under the tree. And you as a child, or me as a child, I might would go over there and try to pick them up and shake them and see if I could figure out maybe what it was. And it it never seemed to fail that at least one of my presents was like a box of socks, you know, and it was like, I knew I needed them, but it was like, it's just a box of socks. And uh, today, when you hear me say, how should the local church be governed? You're like, oh, it's great. It's a box of socks, you know? Hopefully, what you're going to find out is this is way more than a box of socks. It may be more like getting an Xbox, um, if that's what you still get as a kid. <laughs> I got Nintendo, Technobowl. And, uh, but we live, and y'all know this, we live in an anti-institutional age. And in so many ways, there are actually very good reasons for that. The biggest reason, though, I believe, is found in the Bible in Genesis 3. 
In Genesis 3, you see the story of Adam and Eve and where they sin against the holy God. They were told, you can have all of this, but not this, and they just had to go have that. And when they rebelled against God, mankind fell into sin, and it is my belief that ever since then, and the scriptures teach this, man has been in rebellion against God. So you might be sitting here and you say, I'm not shaking my fist in God's face. But the scriptures say that indeed you're in rebellion to a holy God. Only when we place our faith in Christ and receive what he has done for us does that even begin to change. And I say begin because I still believe I live in rebellion to a holy God a lot of the time. And I think that there are some other good reasons for this. One of those reasons is that those in power abuse their power. And that makes us want to rebel against the authorities that God has put over us. But here's a question. What if, think about it, what if there is a gift waiting for us to be unwrapped that is better than we could have ever imagined. And it is the gift of coming under God's authority in his local church. What if that gift actually will breathe grace into your soul if you would just receive it? Well, I believe that that is indeed the case. God has a gift for those who will submit to his local church. And I believe this gift is beyond our wildest dreams. <clears throat> but it does need to be to a church that is honoring to the Lord, that believes the Bible, that is a community of believers that come together and they truly treasure Christ. We shouldn't just submit to any church. It needs to be a biblical, God-honoring church. You know, it seems self-evident that God has established authoritative structures in all of life for human flourishing. Think about it. There's authoritative structures everywhere. Start right in the, in the center with the family. The family has been given a structure by God. Parents are to love and to nurture and to discipline, and that's a key, discipline their children. The children are under that authority. That's a biblical concept. And when the parents are truly loving and responsible and they discipline their children, there is great benefit to those children for the rest of their lives. However, when the authority structure breaks down, like divorce and one parent moves away and, or there's just no parenting in a child's life, when that breaks down, it tends to be that that child will struggle. So the authority structure of the family that God has put in place is for human flourishing. It's for us to be all that he has created us to be. Society functions most advantageously 
when there's a healthy government that is benevolently ruling and governing human behavior. I've been in third world countries where that was not true. And it was amazing to me how they struggle. In almost every area, just getting clean water, not, never, not even mentioning uh, Wi-Fi connection. I mean, don't even try to do that. So God puts these systems of authority over us in place. God's authority authors life, and it breathes grace into our souls. So, what should authority in the local church look like? We know what it looks like in the family. We know what it looks like in the society. But where do we see God's authority in the local church? Is it actually in the Bible? Because that's the most important thing. It's not what I think. It's not what you think. It's is it in the Bible? And so we read from Matthew 18, and it should be familiar to you because we looked at it last week as well. In Matthew 18, you see the concept of congregationalism. The uh, Southern Baptist Confession and congregationalism have been around for at least 500 years. It's not a new concept. Essentially, though, I think there is a slide. The foundational claim of a congregationalist is that the entire church body has the final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine and by implication choosing leaders and discipline and and by implication choosing members. So that's the idea of congregationalism. Is there a place where God has explicitly authorized congregationalism as a whole with final authority in the matters of doctrine in the Bible. And I, for, for proof of this, I want you to look again with me at Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, it says this. If you brothers, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's key. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So he says... Let's say that I have sinned against somebody in this church. This scripture is saying that that particular person should come to me in private and they should confront me about what I have done. 
If I don't listen to that confrontation and I don't receive that, they're, to go to, they're supposed to go, based on Matthew 18, and get two or three other people. So now three of them, perhaps, come to me and they say, Clint, this is the problem. And then if Clint says, I disagree, you're the problem, which is what happens a lot, then those people are to go to the church. And they're supposed to present this to the church and let the church who holds the keys to the kingdom, we talked about this last week, why do they hold the keys to the kingdom? Because Jesus has given them the authority to say whether I should remain in the fellowship of the church or I should be removed. And if at that point I do not listen to the church and their reproof of my sin, it says I should be basically excommunicated. I should be removed from their fellowship. And so, membership is in part right here in Matthew 18, we see it. And then there's this whole thing about, if, I don't know if you've ever looked at this verse, look at with me again. It says this, it says down in uh, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. If you're a serious Bible student, you got to ask the question. So if I'm a believer and I'm sitting in my living room and I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying to God, is he not with me then? He's only with me if two or three of us are together. Is that what that text means? No. How do I know that? Because a text without a context is a pretext. It's not good. You need a context. The context that all of this is being brought up in is in church discipline. And so what the text is teaching is one person can't be responsible to remove somebody from the fellowship of the church. But if two or three come together and they agree, then there is the opportunity for that person to be removed, especially if those people take it to the church and it still is not dealt with. And so the whole idea is the context of discipline and that's why it's saying if two or three agree. Now, another verse that is very much like this one, but probably a little stronger, at one point we, we, we were supposed to have uh, an 11 or 12 year old read this text and I told Carrie I don't think this is the week for them to read because what's happening in the text look with me at 1 Corinthians 5 1 through 5 1 Corinthians 5 1 through 5 very similar to what we read in Matthew 18 it says this it is actually reported, I read from an ESV, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and listen to what Paul says, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. If this was on television, it would be rated X. For a man has his father's wife, and you, he's saying to the Corinthians, are arrogant. That's pretty strong. 
and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, this sin is heinous. He should be removed from among you. For though absent in body, Paul says, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced the judgment on the one who didn't, did such a thing. Hang on now. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not supposed to judge. Judge not lest ye be judged. Remember? That's the most misquoted verse I've ever heard. No, there is a time for judgment. How could we do anything if we could never judge anything? There must be a time, and here Paul says he's judging. So he says, I have already pronounced judgment on him who did such a thing. He says, when you are assembled, when you come together as a church, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, listen to this, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The way to understand this is, is when you take someone who is in the church and you remove them from the church, and, and this is important for me to say, is we're talking here, y'all, not about just sin. We're all sinners. We all sin. We're talking about someone who is unrepentant in their sin. Someone, when they are confronted, they're just flippant about it. Like, that's ah, no big deal. I mean, you know, God doesn't really exist anyway, and I can do what I want. I'm the captain of my own ship. Who's to tell me what to do? You're just another church member. You're a sinner like I am. You shouldn't get to tell me what to do. No, the scriptures are real clear that when you're in Christ, when you're in his church, and there is sin, that God is jealous for the purity of his people. He says, I am holy, therefore you be holy. And so what he's saying is, turn him out of the church. Satan's realm is out there, not in the church. The other thing it's saying is that by destroying his own flesh through his sin, maybe it will save his soul. So the idea is not to destroy this person. That's not the idea of the text. The idea is to remove him, let him experience the heinousness of his sin to such a level that he will go, golly, I need God. That's the idea of the text. And so the church should be practicing this. And when the church does practice this, it creates a peace and a purity in the church that I would venture to say we don't see a lot of. And this is what I mean. Don't you know churches and church members that have been in churches for years and years and years and everybody in the church knows there's this sin but nobody in the church will go confront it. They just tolerate it. You know, you know what we, I call it? It's just, let's just sweep that one under the rug. 
I don't want to have to deal with that. That's going to be a mess. If I go talk to them about that, I mean, who am I to bring it up? I'm not perfect myself. No. If you were asleep, I'm sorry. No, no, no. The church is to be holy. We are the bride of Christ. We, if nobody else in the world, we are to strive. We're not going to be perfect, but we are to strive for righteousness and for holiness. And when I sit by and let unrepentant sin go for week after month after year, and y'all know there there are people in churches that are having affairs And people in the church know it, and nobody's saying a word about it. Where's the holiness in that? And we know it's true. I'm telling you right now, God will not bless a church that is unholy. You want to grow? Be holy as I am holy. He is not going to bless a church that is filled with unrepentant sin. Y'all, I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm not talking to any one particular person about anything. I am just trying to teach this text and be faithful to what I believe God is doing and saying through this text. So if you're sitting there thinking he must know, the truth is I don't. But the text says, when you are assembled, so when you come together, hand this man over to Satan. Let me ask you the question. Who is supposed to hand them over? Of course, it's got to be the deacons, right? They're the leaders. Oh, oh, never mind, never mind. It's the pastor. We pay him to do that. He needs to hand them over. (laughs) No! Y'all, I love Joni. She knows I'm playing. Uh, It's not the pastor. It's not the deacons. It's not the elders. It's not a pope. In this text and in the other one we read, the one that turns them over, the one who has the keys, the one who has the authority is the church. That's what makes a Baptist church a congregational church. It is ruled by the congregation. That's why we're different. That's why you may come to a Baptist church. But here's the thing. With authority comes responsibility. And we have authority as members of the local church. By joining a church, you have responsibility for your church's teaching. And for every single member's discipleship. Not, not just me. You, you're the congregation, you're the church. You know what? You're responsible if I, the pastor, begins to teach false doctrine. You should be the ones that say, no, we won't stand for that. What about if uh, we have someone that's in the membership candidacy? We had the class this morning, but they have a basic no understanding of the gospel. 
And I've been in situations at my last church where I sat in a membership interview and asked, so tell me the gospel. And they basically say, well, I'm a good, I'm a good person. And I believe that my good um, essentially is, outweighs my bad, and I'm trying to do right. And I go to church. I even give some money. Wrong answer. That's not the gospel. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is this. I deserve, Clint Watson, I deserve nothing truly but hell and condemnation. I am a sinner from the fall in Genesis 3, just like every one of you. But at one point in my life, when I was 20 years old, God, by his saving grace, called me to himself, and I asked God in repentance and faith, save me from myself and save me from my sin. I'll follow you all the days of my life, and I'll treasure you more than all else. And God came in, and he substitutionary atoned for my sin, and I became his, a child of the king, and now, the rest of my days, I seek to please him, not because I'm earning my salvation, but because he saved me, and I'm grateful. And so, that's the gospel. When you get to your membership interview, go back and listen to this tape and just say that. <laughs> a word about this peace and purity. God desires a holy people. 1 Peter 1.16, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Why does God care that we're holy? Why, why is that a big idea to him? It speaks of his character. His children need to be like him. He is good and true and right and perfect and holy. And that holiness is huge. But here's what happens in the church. You want to know how a church is more pure or a church is less pure on a continuum? This is what I think happens. A church that is <clears throat> less pure, the members of that church are just, they become nice people. They're real nice. If you come to church with them, they're just pleasant and they're nice and you get along and uh, they get, you know, you get to be friends and you have little dinners together in the fellowship hall and stuff like that. They're just, they're, they're nice people. Here on the pure side, I believe biblical Christianity, you're going to find a people that are a holy people that will labor in prayer. When there's a prayer meeting, they might stay for an hour. They might stay for two or three hours. You know what? When it's a really pure church, the members in the church, they spend time alone in the Word of God, and they read, and they pray, and they talk with God, and they ask Him to show them their sin. And then when they see their sin... In a pure church, when people see their sin, they go to their brother or sister. They don't wait for them to come to them and they say, will you forgive me? 
The other day, I was, I was rude to you. I was, I was unkind to you. But you see, over here, in a less pure church, they sweep it under the rug. Yeah, I know I wasn't as nice as I should have been. I know I shouldn't have said that, but I'm going to sweep it here and hope everybody forgets. That's what we did in my family. But you know what the problem with my family is? There wasn't a one of them Christians. That's how they dealt with conflict, and we sweep it under the rug. I remember I got in a big argument with my grandmother. I wasn't a Christian. She wasn't a Christian. I came out of the room a few minutes later. I mean, we, were, we had been screaming. She lived with us. We had been screaming at one another, and she said, Clint, would you like some cornbread? And I thought, if you don't hit me with the pan... You know, it's like, how do you sweep that under the rug? We just talked about some deep, hard stuff, and you told me my, you know, this or that or whatever it was. You know how you do as a parent, I mean, as a as family. You can, you can say some mean stuff. And she said some mean stuff, and I said some mean stuff. We just swept it away. I don't know that we've ever talked about it. It can't happen in the church. It can't happen in the church. And so, purity... My definition of purity, you might see it on the screen. The purity of the church is its degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. If we want to be a thriving, dynamic, healthy, growing local church, we had best be serious about being holy. Wayne Grudem uh, has written a book, Systematic Theology. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, If you're a serious student of the Bible, I encourage you to get it. He's a Baptist. He's a heavyweight, like Muhammad Ali style, theologically. Um, He basically has these factors of churches that are more pure, and he lists 12 of them. I'm not going to get into it for time's sake, but he basically hits, I'll hit a few of them, He says, biblical doctrine is preached. Proper use of the sacraments. What I mean by proper use of the sacraments is in churches all over America and all the time, we we offer the sacraments and everybody takes them just like everybody's a believer. But you know what we're really saying with the sacraments? Is that as a church, we affirm, if we're allowing you to take the sacraments, we affirm that you're in the family of faith. And I'd be willing to bet that people that have come down or taken the elements here, that's not been true. But they take them because that's what everybody does in America. That's not the true church. What I'm saying is a pure church defends the table. A pure church does that. They have genuine worship, effective prayer, effective witnessing. Biblical church government. So I'll transition there. What does the Bible say about elders and deacons? What does the Bible say about elders and deacons? The Bible teaches that churches have elders and deacons. We know that. The Bible teaches that the church has elders and deacons. The challenge in this is to determine how many elders were at a given church. And the controversy, even among our church, is was there one elder Or was there multiple elders? 
And, uh, and that's a challenge. So let me say this, that my disclaimer is that I taught on this probably two or three years ago, and one dear brother who I think was handling it in, a, in the right way took me to breakfast and he said, I don't think you should have done it that way. And you know, looking back on it, I think he was right. And I appreciate the Matthew 18 way that he handled that, one-on-one over a breakfast. So let me say this. I think there are good and godly people who see this issue both ways. Like there should be one elder, and in this case, congregational church, Baptist church, one elder is the pastor. That's probably the most common model in the Baptist church today and has been for a long time. The other argument is that you have multiple elders in one church, what some people call a plurality of elders, and then you also have deacons. And the elders are responsible to shepherd, to oversee. Those are the words that the New Testament uses. And the deacons are much more geared towards service and deeds. So I think that in a broad scheme, God has given gifts. Some people have what I would call word gifts. They're able to teach the word and administer the word. And other people have deed gifts, deeds of gifts of service, and they meet needs. And so God, I think, has given two offices, elder and deacon. And that way, he can govern and lead his church. Here's the thing. I don't want you to just take my word for this. I want us to look at the Bible. I want us to be a church that says, if it's in the Bible, if it's in the Bible, well, then that settles it. We'll do it if it's in the Bible. So let's look. Let's look in... um, the, uh, the first text that I would want to look at is Acts 20, verse 17. I'll give you just a minute. Look at Acts 20, verse 17. So it says there in Acts 20, verse 17. Bless you. Now from, you know, I think that's Miltos, so I want to call it Milk Toast. Now from Miltos, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. He called the elders of the church. So you have plural elders, then church singular. He called the elders of the church to come to him. So here we see an example of multiple elders from one church. But that argument may not be strong enough. And so let's look at James 5, 14. This one to me feels like it's the clearest and it's the most practical. James 5.14 says this. James is the brother of Jesus. He's writing the book of James and he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So you got this sick person He says, call for the elders, plural, of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
So here you have multiple elders coming to pray over one person. My argument is from Scripture, I think that the Scriptures clearly teach there were multiple elders at a given church. That that's the precedent um, that we see in Scripture. It's a pattern for church leadership in the New Testament. It mentions both the elders and the deacons, and it is a pattern. Um, having more than one elder at each church, and this, this is what I want you to hear, because I think sometimes when I say this, people think it's a power grab. I think maybe that's what some people might feel. Having more than one elder at each church is a division of power and a protection against the abuse of power. Because if I'm, let's say I'm an elder and there's six or seven other elders out there, as an elder, I get one vote. I only get one vote. The other elders get a vote. And however that vote turns out, four to three, then that's how we go forward. But in an alternate situation, it could be, and I have seen it, where the, uh, the pastor seems to have the sway of the congregation, and in this way, I think it's a real protection. However, and I want you to hear this loud and strong, I could be wrong. <laughs> Bob says, never. I could be wrong. Both of the offices of the elder and deacon are vital to the health of the church. And when you look at 1 Timothy 3, and we're not going to look there today for time's sake, you see the character outlines of what it should take to be an elder or a deacon. There's great character that should be considered before any of those should be put in leadership to be an elder or a deacon. And so I want you to know <clears throat> that that is there in 1 Timothy 3, and I would encourage you to look at it. We come now to the place in our service. Next week, we're, uh, like we're in this series on the church. I've asked David Thompson to teach next week on the sacraments and baptism. But this is the week that we are to come to the table. And so, if you would, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and starting in verse 27. And this is what I meant by a more pure church is careful to defend the table. So, here's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many are weak and ill, 
and some have died. So there's this very real reality of coming to the table in a worthy manner or an unworthy manner. The table is for all believers, and I encourage you, uh, the deacons, if you guys would come forward in terms of the ones that are helping with the table, we'll, we'll first take uh, the elements, but hold them and we'll, we'll take them together as a sign of unity as a church.